We are continuing our series through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 8, where we have, I think, been all summer. There is so much, so much that we have uh, to learn from the Apostle Paul here in chapter 8 that it's good that we are dwelling on this chapter for a while. We are returning to uh, Romans 8, verses 18 through 25 this Sunday morning. Let us first turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Creator God, you remind us that the darkness of ignorance and doubt cannot overcome your life-giving word. May your Holy Spirit, who first inspired these words of Scripture, shine your light and once again awaken us to the hearing and living of this radiant truth. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. But we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he who hopes for what he sees but if we hope for what we do not see we wait for it with patience The grass withers and the flower fades but the word of the Lord endures forever thanks be to God <clears throat> Many of you uh, might know by now that we had a little air conditioning leak at our home a few weeks ago, and that has led us to be out of our home for about the past week and a half as flooring in about half of our home was torn up and replaced. It was a very minor issue, really, especially in the light of what several of you experienced during the flood a year or so ago. And in a much larger sense, a a little water messing up some flooring in my home is such a non-issue in place in the context of what other families have or are currently going through. My flooring issue has been nothing more than a small inconvenience. Insurance is covering most of the expenses. We've had some wonderful places to stay, and that's not even to mention that we have uh, now a new floor, and we're getting new baseboards, and it's been an opportunity for me to do some much-needed painting before my baby boy makes an appearance. So I have absolutely nothing to complain about. But with that said, though, being displaced from my home for a week and a half perhaps put me in just the right place to meditate on a piece of scripture that's talking about groaning and waiting with patience. 
and I was not even the one who was 32 weeks pregnant. (laughs) Our little issue with our home became sort of a metaphor as I tried to allow this scripture passage to, to sink into the depths of my heart, and it was just enough to remind me that this fallen world is not my home. That my primary citizenship is elsewhere and that my hope is tied up in what is to come, not in what is present. And while a small flooring issue might be a minor inconvenience, there are plenty of challenges that we face in life which are not simply inconsequential disruptions of our lives. We face moments or seasons in which life can be excruciating devastating, life-altering. Last week, Pastor John very poignantly described the depth of some of the suffering we face in this life and the hope we have in the glory to come. This morning, I want us to look at the last few verses of this passage and think about how we live out this life in this place of already and not yet. Already having our final salvation secure as the adopted children of God, but as Paul says in verse 23, awaiting our full adoption as sons. Paul's comment here, by the way, is not contradicting what he has said earlier concerning our adoption. If you missed the sermon on adoption a couple of weeks ago, I, I want to strongly encourage you to go back and, and listen to it. Adoption in the Apostle Paul's theology is extremely important. It moves beyond just the legal justification and it gets to the relational, our filial relationship with God the Father. We are described as sons of God because by the power of the Spirit we have union with Jesus Christ who is the Son of God. In other words, we have been brought into relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. We now share in the sonship of Jesus Christ. This is a remarkable truth in reality. So what Paul says here in chapter 8 is that those who have received the Holy Spirit have received a spirit of adoption. And Paul affirms here in verse 23 that the Holy Spirit serves as the first fruits of what is to come. That is to say that the Spirit is our guarantee, the first installment of God's promises. Therefore, what Paul is saying here in verse 23 about awaiting adoption is that while we have been given this foretaste of what it means to be the adopted children of God, we have not yet experienced the fullness of this reality. We begin to experience our adoption in the Spirit, but we haven't yet experienced our full inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for us. We haven't yet known what it is like to be without sin, even as we have been freed from the power of sin. We haven't yet experienced what it's like to have a body that isn't susceptible to disease and decay that sin brings into the world even as we are daily, inwardly renewed. We haven't yet known what it's like to dwell in perfect relationship with God. As Pastor John made clear last week, God is our portion. God is our hope. Our hope is that in the end, we have full relationship with God, unhindered by sin, that we dwell in the joyful presence of God for all of eternity. Our fallen nature is keeping us 
from knowing what that is like. For now we only see in the glass dimly. Until the day comes, though, when we will behold God face to face in all of his glory and we will know, even as we are known, we are left waiting. The question is, what does our waiting look like? Paul wants us to know how we are to go about our lives while we await our full adoption and the redemption of our bodies. This waiting is going to take a certain shape. So I want to highlight three marks or characteristics of our waiting this morning that we find here in Romans 8. So first, we wait with hope. We wait with hope. This one is probably fairly obvious to all of you since hope is a theme that runs throughout this entire passage and chapter. Paul tells us in verse 20 that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. All of creation has bore this curse of the judgment of Adam's sin, being left in a state of frustration, awaiting the day when it will be liberated from this bondage to decay and things will be made new and set right. So Paul describes creation as groaning as an expectant mother anticipating the day when the painful prelude will give way to the joy of new life. Paul will go on to say that even as creation groans and waits with hope, we too who have received the Holy Spirit groan inwardly and wait eagerly with hope. He says in verse 24, For in this hope we were saved. For in this hope we were saved. Our salvation belongs decisively in the past when Christ bore our sins on the cross. There's a story of someone who once asked the great theologian Karl Barth when the exact moment was when he was saved. And his response was classic. He replied, it happened one afternoon in AD 34 when Jesus died on the cross. We have been Liberated from the guilt and bondage of our sins and from the just judgment of God upon them. All because Jesus took our sins and their just judgment upon himself on the cross. Now what this means is that we don't have to sit around in fret over the guilt of our sins. We don't have to sit around and question our forgiveness. Remember, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins were dealt with 2,000 years ago. The old man is dead. As Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it, it means that we are completely forgiven, are justified by faith, and reconciled to God. But this doesn't mean, as we have said, that we have reached the final goal of our salvation. Yet, as biblical scholar John Stott states, we remain only half saved. Stott goes on to explain, for we have not yet been saved from the outpouring of God's wrath on the day of judgment, nor have the final vestiges of sin in our human personality been eradicated. Not yet has our sinful nature been obliterated. Not yet has our body been redeemed. So we were saved in hope of our total liberation. As the creation was subjected to frustration, 
in hope of being set free from it. Now, I think we should note a few things here about the nature of this hope that we've been saved in. We know a little about the content of our hope, specifically here in these verses. It is the full adoption as sons of God and the redemption of our bodies. But what is the nature of our hope? Let me first say what it is not. Our Christian hope is not merely a wish for something, not a whim or a fancy as we often use the word hope. Like if I said, I hope that Mississippi State wins the national championship in football this year. Hope articulated in that way expresses a desire or a longing that is nothing more than a wish dream. It certainly is not rooted in reality. (laughs) Our Christian hope, on the other hand, is very solidly rooted in reality because it is solidly founded in God himself. Our hope, therefore, is strong. It's not something vague or indefinite. We aren't just wishing that things turn out well. We aren't simply optimistically desiring that this messed up world will get corrected somehow. No, the God who has created all things and reigns sovereignly over all creation and history has revealed to us what is the end of history. He has put a marker in the middle of time in the cross of Jesus Christ where he has dealt with the sins of all his people, past, present, and future, and has set the course whereby all things will be reconciled Back to him. And again, as Paul tells us here in this passage, we've been given an installment of his promises in the gift of the Holy Spirit that we might firmly trust in them. So when Paul says in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it. He's painting us a word picture of someone who is bending his or her neck to spot someone or something coming. Or perhaps it's more like a dog on a leash that's pulling, straining for something that's ahead. Just as creation waits in eager longing in verse 19, just as all of creation cranes its neck for the revelation of the sons of God because it will result in the full redemption and glorification of all creation, we who are in Christ strain to see that which is to come as well. Absolutely love how Martin Lloyd-Jones expresses this point. He states, faith gives us a certainty about these things, meaning the promises of God. Hope makes us stand on tiptoe to have a look at them. Hope makes us stand on tiptoe to have a look at them. To put it in yet another way, faith looks back to the finished work of Christ and gives a certainty concerning the things he has purchased for us. Hope looks forward with eager expectation to the things which Christ has thus purchased for me. And that is exactly what our hope is. It is standing on tiptoe, awaiting with great anticipation the coming of the glory of God. It is awaiting with great anticipation our full adoption and the redemption of our bodies, which is an inheritance which has been granted to us by the costly blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the hope we have is a confident hope. 
Even as we look back in faith with absolute assurance, we can, with absolute confidence, live for and look forward to these blessings that are believed and accepted by faith. Just look at how our hope is described in other places in Scripture. We find in passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.8, which states, But since we belong to the day, meaning the day of the coming of the Lord, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Hope is described here as that which you put on your head to protect it against all the wiles of the evil one in the world and the flesh. And again in Hebrews 6.19, with the author speaking of holding fast to the hope set before us, says this, We have this, meaning hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So even as we are instructed here to hold fast to hope, hope is described as holding us fast. Note that neither of these passages gives us a sense that hope is a vague longing or desire. It isn't merely a wish dream. Rather, hope is strong and steadfast. And because of the content and nature of our hope, We can wait in this tension between the already and the not yet, between the present difficulty and the future destiny with joy. So the next mark of our waiting is joy. Now, given all the groaning that's being discussed in this passage, you might be wondering where I am finding joy in this text. Pastor John mentioned last week, though, that our experience of suffering And being adopted as a child of God is not a contradiction. Groaning and having the first fruits of the Spirit is not incompatible. Paul is not saying here that we groan in spite of having the Spirit. The statement he is making here in verse 23 is causal. We groan because we have the Spirit. We groan because we have the Spirit. Now follow me here. Doesn't it make sense that those who know that something is not right, those who have an idea of the way things really should be, those who are awaiting the day when everything is made new, the day when all sad things come untrue, would groan? It's hard for us as Christians to look at the world and to see what sin has done to it, To see how the world has been ravaged by sin and not grown. To look at the contrast between the beginning of creation, of how God had intended for the world to be, and what is now, and not grown. It's hard to look at ourselves and not grown. Those who have the spirit of holiness and know exactly what God calls us to be and to also know the ways in which we fall short of that standard. Our yearning is to be what God desires of us. Our yearning is that creation would be as God intends. This is why we wait eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. That we would be fully rescued from this body of sin and death. So in this way, the spirit actually increases our frustration. And yet, we who are saved in hope aren't looking at what is seen, right? Paul states in the very next verse, verse 24, Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? 
Paul is asking, why are you troubled about what is happening in the world? Why are you downcast? Why are you shaken? Was your hope in what was seen? This is an encouragement not to lose the joy of our salvation, not to lose the joy of the hope that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Paul is going to say something very similar in 2 Corinthians 4. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And how does Paul start that passage in 2 Corinthians? Like this. So we do not lose heart. Paul wants us to take heart and to be joyful. What has Paul already told us in Romans 5, 1 and 2 when he started this section of the letter to the Romans? Remember? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And here it is. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Even as we groan, we rejoice. We rejoice in the Lord always. We rejoice because through faith we can trust in the promises of God. And in hope we can strain to see the day when the glory of God will be fully revealed. We rejoice because we know that this suffering, this groaning will lead to glory. I said this when we were in Romans 5, I will say it again. Rejoicing in suffering is not to trivialize our suffering. It is not to downplay the pain we experience, nor is it a mere resignation of our suffering. We are not rejoicing in spite of our suffering. No, we rejoice because of our suffering. We rejoice because of our groaning. This groaning is pointing us heavenward. It's helping us to not be content with the things of this world. It's helping us to not be so comfortable here that we forget that our true and eternal home is elsewhere. Therefore, our groaning and suffering serves to actually increase our hope because it makes us long all the more for what is to come. And as our hope increases, our joy increases. Further, Paul has told us in verse 17 that suffering as Christ has suffered affirms that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And that we will be glorified with Christ when that great day comes. So while we wait, we groan. And while we groan, we rejoice. The final mark or characteristic of our waiting And the tension between the already and the not yet is that we wait eagerly, but with patience. We wait eagerly, but with patience. Even as we wait with eagerness and expectancy, meaning that our waiting is not a passive waiting, not a relaxed waiting, remember that we are straining to see what is to come. Even as we long for the glory of God to be revealed, we wait with patience. 
Paul says in verse 25, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I will confess that I am by nature not a very patient person. Come to think of it, I haven't met many people who describe themselves as being patient by nature. And there's probably a good reason for that. One reason is that we are not, in our fallen nature, naturally patient. Patience is antithetical to our fallen nature. We want what we want in now. We are given patience only as a spiritual grace by the Holy Spirit. It's listed in Galatians as a fruit of the Spirit. The other reason is that the word for patient in the Latin actually comes from the same word for passion, which literally means to suffer. Being patient is about long suffering. Not many of us are patient because not many of us enjoy suffering. I was told the other day that Amazon.com accounts for over 40% of online internet sales. 40%. It's staggering. Out of all of the online re- retailers, one retailer accounts for 40, over 40% of sales. Now, part of this is because you can find almost anything that you want on Amazon. But if I were a betting man, which I'm not, I would bet that a huge part of the sales is due to what? Free two-day shipping. I'm not even sure how the math works out for them. I'm pretty sure that the amount that I pay in my Prime membership each year is dwarfed by how much it costs Amazon to ship stuff to me in two days. But the fact is, though, no one wants to wait for anything. No one wants to deny what their heart longs for any longer than they have to. We don't like to wait because it hurts not to get what we want when we want it. Being patient carries with it the idea of enduring, especially here through trials. This is certainly the sense that Paul is using here. For when we are patient, it shows that we have a confident hope that God will fulfill his promises no matter the hardships we face. It means that we are willing to live in a moment, even a painful moment, because we are expectant that it is meaningful, that something good will come from it. Just a few verses, Paul will affirm that God is working all things, that all things work together for good for those who love him. Paul has already used the illustration of pregnancy, of the birthing process. In verse 23, he says that creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. I haven't experienced what it's like to carry a child and to give birth to a child, obviously. But having watched my wife do it multiple times now, I have some idea. You know that the pain of the process is totally worth the joy of the result. You are willing to patiently endure because you know it produces something. Too often, though, we see waiting as something that is Wasted. This is how Dr. Seuss describes waiting and oh, the places you will go. 
This book talks about heading towards a useless place, the waiting place, for people just waiting, waiting for a train to go or a bus to come or a plane to go or the mail to come or the rain to go or the phone to ring or the snow to snow or waiting around for a yes or no or waiting for their hair to grow, waiting for the fish to bite or waiting for wind to fly a kite or waiting for Friday night. Everyone is just waiting. Awaiting the promises of God is not Useless, though. Just as the waiting that a mother does before the birth of a child is not useless. Just as each moment in the womb is a moment that a baby is being nurtured and prepared for new life by the mother, God is using every moment to grow us up for eternal life. We know that all of our life is pregnant with meaning and purpose. Notice what Paul has done here, though. We are to wait eagerly. We are to wait patiently. As John Stott puts it, we should not wait so eagerly that we lose our patience, nor so patiently that we lose our expectation but eagerly and patiently together. Stott acknowledges that this is a hard balance to keep. Waiting patiently can cause us to fall into lethargy, apathy, pessimism. Waiting eagerly can cause us to try to force God's hand. This is Judas' sin, right? He was tired of waiting for Jesus to take on his role as a militant Messiah who would deliver the Jews from the Roman Empire. So he decided to force Jesus into a situation in which he had to flex his muscles, as it were. God's plan will not be diverted by our attempts to try to force his hand. The good news for us is that the Spirit has been given to us as our help in our waiting, which we will, Lord willing, get to next Sunday. So we must be careful to wait patiently and eagerly, even as we wait through many trials and tribulations with joy and expectant hope. I want to close this morning with a thought by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, whose confident hope led him all the way to death at the hands of the Nazis. Bonhoeffer commented, not all can wait. Certainly not those who are satisfied, contented, and feel that they live in the best of all possible worlds. He goes on to say this, those who learn to wait are uneasy about their way of life but yet have seen a vision of greatness in the world of the future and are patiently expecting its fulfillment. Are you content with the way things are? Do you believe that this is the best of all possible worlds? If so, waiting will be very, very difficult. But if you have seen the vision that God has revealed to us, you understand that the glory of God that is to come is beyond all comparison, then waiting with patience and eagerness, with joy and hope, will be made possible. 
It will also be made possible by the one that God sends to us to help us in our waiting, the Holy Spirit. So let us pray for the Spirit's help. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, in whom we find our beginning and our end, who is the Alpha and the Omega, by whose command time runs its course. Bless our impatience, perfect our faith, and while we await the fulfillment of your promises, grant us hope in your word. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.